Now, for this part of the podcast, we're absolutely delighted to welcome Radio Merseyside's Julia Bold. How are you doing, Julia? You okay? I'm all right. I'm a bit shell-shocked. It's been a 24 hours and a bit there, yeah. It's been a lot going on, and I'm also a bit uncomfortable, because I usually ask the questions. Okay. <laughs> so be nice. <laughs> now, I'm sure most of you will know precisely why Julia is here, and probably will have listened to some of her work so far. But, Julia, yesterday, we're recording this on Friday morning, yesterday, Thursday, your series, your secret series that you've been working our way on for the... Well, it's been a year of your life, yeah. hasn't it, where you've been working with Everton. The amount of times, I think, over the past six months, someone has said to me, just imagine if someone was doing like an Amazon <laughs> or a Netflix-style documentary mm. inside Everton during that season. And one of the things I always wanted to say but couldn't was, well, actually, there is, there is somebody that's kind of doing something very, very similar. Yeah. And now we've got the fruits of your labour, haven't we? The uh, new podcast series, Everton, nothing will be the same. Ten parts, BBC Sounds, went online on, on, on Thursday. I've already binged most of it. I'm sure Chris has as well. Um, I mean... How's it been? How's the reaction been? It's been incredible. I didn't sleep the night before. And yet, as you say, it's been a complete secret life. And that people have said to me, oh, imagine if someone had been in Everton. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> yes, because I couldn't say where I was. Very few people knew. I know you knew where I was, but there was very, very few people that knew. And I've had to lie to friends. I haven't even known where I was. I was completely mm. hidden away. And yet yeah, the, the reaction has been just insane in, in the most fantastic way. Um, I, I, I couldn't sleep, so I watched on BBC Sounds as each episode uploaded at 6am <laughs> yesterday, and I was terrified. And I, you hope these things go down well, and you hope there's enough insight in there. But people have just, you know, it, even non-football fans mm. have been in contact saying, I am binging this. People were messaging at 3am this morning saying, I've not gone to bed. I, I've <laughs> got to listen to the end of this. And that's just the best compliment ever. And, and I'm so pleased that Everton fans especially, that fan base, can now get some insight into mm -hmm. what went on, mm -hmm. some decision-making that went on, reasons why for things and, and how people were feeling. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, everyone from the outside could see it was a roller coaster. Although mm -hmm. someone said to me, don't call it a roller coaster because there was too many lows, not enough highs. Yeah. Um, but it w was a roller coaster. It was, it was everything. Because if you think, you know, the Brighton result was... was a high, wasn't it, near the end of the season that came out of nowhere? Yeah. Um, you know, Bournemouth the last. Not for, not for Kevin Farwell. Well, the, no, no. I mean, that's it. The quote in there that yeah, he was wondering if Everton can hang on. I mean, that happened uh, last weekend against Bournemouth. Someone in front of me at three up went, oh, I think we need a fourth and we might win this. <laughs> I mean, I love that kind of humour from the Everton fans. But yeah, it's been it's been amazing and thank you. I've had so many messages. I'm trying to get through them all. So if people are messaging to say what they think, but yeah, thank you for listening. First of all, anyone that is and. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little bit in shock, I think. Just, uh, <laughs> you, you said there, obviously, it was six o'clock, they all went online. What, was the, what's, what time was the first reaction that you got? Uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Everton fans, a couple of Everton fans were very clever because the landing page with a tiny trailer was there ready, only yeah. for the, the sake of the BBC uploading it. And a couple of people found it and messaged me and said, is this anything to do with you? <laughs> and I sort of had to deny anything and ignore anything. I said, I don't know what it is. Um, probably by quarter to seven yeah. <laughs> 45 minutes well, and someone, I think the first one's about yeah, 42 minutes well, at least somebody gave you so the, uh, it didn't take long <laughs> gave you the courtesy of listening to an episode before yeah, commenting yeah, yeah fantastic well we'll get into content shortly but if we just talk about some of the logistics first just can you just explain to us just what was it? how how did this work where you were inside Finch Farm how long for how did that operate 
it, it feels like I was in there forever. Um, mm -hmm. So what happens is BBC Sound struck up an access agreement with the club, mm -hmm. um, and then I'm put into the club. <laughs> when, when was that? Uh, November. November. So just after the double Bournemouth week, I sort mm -hmm. of went in, um, had my own little desk and things and place mm -hmm. to work, which was right by the canteen, which was really handy. Um, and yeah, and then I have to strike a balance with the club while I'm in there. So we did have an access agreement and. Yeah, it's up to me then being in there to negotiate mm. where I'm going, what we're doing. And you don't know what you're making. We genuinely went in there to make, I think, off the back of the previous season, um, an insight into Frank Lampard and how he's going about rebuilding a club and how do you take on the likes of, you know, Newcastle with huge amounts of money behind them and these, these huge clubs with a colossal mm. amount of money and how he's negotiating that as a young manager. And that was sort of mm. the premise for the series. Mm -hmm. um, when, was, when was the access agreement signed? How, how much pre-work had it taken to get you in there for it November? Took, I don't know because I wasn't involved in no. sort of the to and fro in. It went on quite a long yeah. time. But as soon as it was signed, I was dropped in. <laughs> and of course, I suppose, if, you, if you'd arrived just after that difficult week with Bournemouth and, and Leicester, then yeah. you'd have had the World Cup break to kind mm. of acclimatise for it. I think when we look back on that period, I mean, me and Chris often speak about it, just very much felt like the beginning of that season, under Frank Lampard, I mean, made reference to me match report against Bournemouth last, year, um, last week, obviously they won 3-0 under the October sunshine, yeah. things started to look better, just like 12 months ago when they did with Chris, Crystal Palace under yes, Frank Lampard, yeah, you yeah. think we're making steps forward yeah. here, and it just, it felt like there was a lot of, and I don't think it was necessarily naive, but a lot of hope and optimism around the club. It's the late summer of last year, you had Frank mm -hmm. Lampard, and you had, you had good people that seemed to be doing good things, like nice, good, PR savvy, media friendly mm. people, which does help, I think, for image of the club Completely, and relationships to the club. Yeah. Like Sir Connor Cody, James Tarkovsky, Seamus Coleman, as well as Frank. They're good talkers, mm. aren't they? Yeah. I mean, how did you find the atmosphere when, when you went in there? Because, you know, I'm. I'm sure you got on very well and everything yeah, wants to help you. Yeah, it was still positive. I mean, the couple of results, as we know, the double Bournemouth week, as it became known, wasn't ideal. But I think everyone just had it down as a bit of a, of a blip week. And it was an odd season, wasn't it? Everybody knew the season was stopping. And yeah, and do you know what Frank Lampard was so liked? Mm -hmm. Even up to his final day and him going, he was so liked by everybody. And I can't state that enough. He was you know he would speak to everybody he was great with me he didn't have to be good with me he could have just you know when the microphone's on but no no you check on training if i was okay because it was freezing up at finch farm mm. and you know the kit men had come out and bring me a coat and stuff like that an extra coat and extra gloves and things and everybody looked you know all his staff actually called joe edwards good good people um and i think there was a lot of positivity mm. i don't think i think obviously people were concerned by those couple of results but i don't think anyone anticipated what was about to happen once the restart came and the Wolves game happened on Boxing Day. And yeah, he was a good person who was great with, with me and the series. Yeah. And uh, and that kind of shows the person he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was an interesting week. So I think with hindsight, it's easy to look back on that Leicester Bournemouth. Bournemouth was the week that mm. kind of set in motion the series of events that probably led to Frank Lampard's departure. But at the time, it wasn't as obvious, was it? I, I, I don't think so. And I think yeah. it's easy to kind of, with the benefit of hindsight, say, oh, it was always going to go from wrong yeah. at that point. It wasn't. There were plenty of opportunities to, to pick things back up for him. Yeah, and, and he had the dressing room. Yeah. You know, he had the dressing room. Everybody liked him. And that's a huge thing in football. You know, yeah. you, you being liked is a massive thing. He was motivating people. Yeah, now you can look back and I know, you know, people wanted a knee-jerk reaction mm -hmm. maybe in that World Cup break, but I don't think anyone could have anticipated 
no. what was about to happen. No. no, so I mean, through January then, obviously that came would have hit you hard and come at you mm. very fast, I should imagine. And obviously the supporters know it through the day by day. Well, probably for the week by week events, game, transfer story, game, transfer story, etc. And then obviously some of the other stuff that happened around there. But for you, being based at Finch mm. Farm, that would have been a, almost not even a day by day, but an hour by hour kind of experience for you that month. What was what was January like? It was it was difficult, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's hard when you're making a series like this because you want to get that insight, but you also and I'm a bit over polite and I'm thinking, I don't know if to go and shove a microphone under somebody's face in this point because it's really difficult. Um, but what was nice and genuinely in Finch Farm, you go through the gates, you drive in, and it's like a world of its own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And despite the fact you know you'd come out the gates and you'd feel you know, the, the stress and the pressure of everything. In there, it was working similar. Training was operating. Players were still doing the same routine. You know, obviously outside, there's all the headlines, there's all the talk, there's all the fan debate, everything's going on. But in there, it, what, it did feel a bit like business as usual. I think the toughest week in January was after Frank Lampard was sacked. Mm -hmm. um, because everybody felt it, because he was a, he was a good mm -hmm. good guy, you know. You don't want to. I remember him as an England legend, and you know, with his shirt on and scoring for England, and as Premier League legend. And you don't want to see that happen to somebody. And you know, he tried. He gave everything. I think you could see very much as well that he lived it, didn't he? Like he, did. he li like you could see. He went for a run round Finch Farm, and people it. would stop him and chat to him. He, he, he loved. Moved up here during the yeah, week, didn't yeah. he? Like he, loved like he being was part of Everton. He, not only did he love being a part of Everton, but also he, he was an obsessive, wasn't he? he mm. Like he was an, an addict to that job. And he worked hard. Yeah, yeah, he'd be there. I mean, I'd do some long hours in Finch Farm, I, and it was when it was dark. You know, early in the morning it was dark mm. by about half four, and I'd usually arrive before nine. He was already there. He'd already been in a few hours. Mm. I sometimes wasn't leaving until six, seven o'clock at night. He was still there. Mm. He was working. He was working really hard to put it right and I can see why he got as long as he did I don't mm -hmm. think you know anybody I said before I don't think anyone anticipated how it would go and and maybe Frank now doesn't particularly I don't know I'd love to hear from Frank mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. or not we ever will I don't know um but yeah it, it maybe wasn't as highly pressurized as what it felt outside being in there yeah. because everyone just had this steely focused to ensure that things were trying to be put mm -hmm. right and obviously you, you didn't hear from, from Frank around that period, but what we do, the vehicle to talk us through that period is Seamus Coleman, yeah. who you know, obviously you know, we all know how just how well he comes across and just what a wonderful ambassador he is for the club. I thought it was really kind of powerful the way he spoke around that time and the impact that something like as big as that has on you know on a football player because we we look at these players and they're paid millions of things like that and yeah. we I think we, sometimes we forget that they also have the stresses of work and human. uncertainty and, mm. and and the knock on impact that that has on their lives as well. I mean that interview with Seamus was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, well, that's all him. He's mm. a he's a genuine person, and I'm glad. I know there's been a lot of comments online about Seamus all extremely mm -hmm. positive and I'm pleased for that because that is who he is there's mm -hmm. you know you don't flick a microphone on and he comes out with it that's who he is on and off the microphone in the series but nobody felt it more than him mm -hmm. nobody feels it he lives in the city he says in it you know if anyone's listened you know that there was some school drop-offs mm -hmm. he didn't do because you know he felt so responsible for the situation he'd take his kids out at seven o'clock at night you know in the hope that you know he could kind of get through that and you know he said to me on tape and off he would think about it all the time 
he was thinking about it at night, he was thinking about it driving. And, you know, no one felt the burden more than him. And I think that's just who he is. Mm. Everton is his club, as he says. Mm. One of the things I found quite interesting as well is I think through some of the, the more difficult periods of last season, and to a certain extent still now, I think one of the issues that a lot of people have is, is communication or effective kind of in, engagement and communication between those from inside the club and without it. Now, you've effectively had a lot of exclusives. <laughs> You're the only person, really, who through this has been able to deliver any insight to that period of time. And one of the things that struck me most was, we talk about Seamus there, but also you have a degree of access to Kevin Farwell, is just, just how eloquent and how engaging some people within that club are when they're given that platform to talk. They, mm. they make a good case for showing what was going on and, and perhaps giving a little bit of a side of stories and an insight that, that we didn't have at the time. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of Kevin Farwell in it, obviously it features throughout mm. the series and then... Mark Chapman came along to Finch Farm in the summer and did a did a big conversation with him as well. He is a fascinating man. He's a hard-working mm. man. His office is filled with files and, and everything, you know, and it's an open-door policy as well. The door's always propped open. Yeah. He, um, yeah, as you said, eloquent. I found him honest, which I hope everybody hears that. But again, a very honest guy who mm. just wants to find the plan that's going to put Everton back where it mm -hmm. should be. And, you know, his dad was a, is a blue. He talks mm. about that and he goes, I'm straight on the phone to me dad because no one gives me more pressure than him. And he's very well liked. I think quite, quite it was interesting putting the microphone in front of him because I, I wasn't totally sure how it would go each time. Um, but once you get him talking, mm. he's very passionate. But away from the microphone, he's quite quiet, just goes about his daily mm. business and he gets on, he's hard working. He just... It's like he gets his head down and he's doing what he's doing. Quite quiet, but obviously one of the one of my favourite bits when I took my professional hat off and yeah, trying to microanalyze everything he yeah. says is what he talks about um, being at Molyneux, the penultimate game of the season, and and <laughs> and not being able to refrain from celebrating when when Yerry Mina's mm. you know, late 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 goal went yeah. in. I think um, you know myself and Chris were there. It was, it was quite interesting. I wrote about it at the time, being in the press box. That was a situation that was replicated across most of the Everton staff and a lot of the Everton media, and it was it was quite interesting because there was actually almost a bit of a, a bit of a dispute after between some of the home fans, yeah. angered by the away people, yeah. like in but that it area, meant that much, and it just meant yeah, that much. It meant didn't it? that and much. I just thought yeah. that, you know, again, it just gave such a wonderful insight into the human side of of these people yeah. and what they're going through, and I think that really is something that is is really powerful and useful for Everton fans to get that insight, which obviously you've been able to deliver. Chris, I know you've obviously listened yeah. to a lot of yeah. it. I mean, what, what, what bits yeah. stand out for you? Yeah. Well, Drew's uh, obviously spoken about the way Frank Lampard was great and he's a, he's a real natural with people and even the way Kevin Felwell, Seamus Coleman was. Sean Dyche on his appointment, <laughs> he did one of the first things he says, I'm a Marmite manager. People, you know, they I, I sort of polarise opinion. And, you know, we can see his, the way he is in press conference, very business-like. But you see, show us a different side of Sean Dyche there in, within the podcast. Yeah, do you know yeah. what? Somebody said to me, who's who's the person you enjoyed recording with the most? It was Sean Dyche. Really? And, I know, and everyone says that, really? <laughs> I think he's so full. He's got a very dry sense of humour. I think in a press conference, that's Sean Dyche, the manager at a press conference. I think yeah. that's, mm -hmm. you know... Um, but fascinating to hear who he is as a person, his relationship with Ian Wone, his assistant, they've been friends for so long, them two together. Um, we did some recording with them together and I literally sat in a room for a good hour and a half and it was the funniest hour and a half I think yeah. I've ever had. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and again, hardworking people. 
I sound like I'm, I'm repeating myself, but the people in there put the hours in. Hmm. Sean Dyche puts the hours in. Ian Wong puts the hours in. Steve Stone puts the hours in. Um, who, who, you know, the banter with them as well is brilliant in that, you know, Steve Stone seems to be the fall guy for a lot of their jokes. But that's their friendship. They've all been friends so long. And, you know, you can't... That's not a work relationship. Mm-hmm. That's much more than that. And you'll hear that they say, you know, their kids are best mates. They all know each other. They best man at each other's wedding and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah, a lot, that's kind of the thing that everyone stood out. They've all said... Seamus is a legend. I know that's been now a debate because he yeah. refuses it and he will hate me for repeating it again, but he's a legend. Uh, Kevin Thelwell's insight is fantastic, but everyone else has been going, Sean Dyche, I didn't know he was like that. <laughs> yeah. I think another fascinating character that, again, is interspersed throughout the series. And I found it really interesting listening towards the end is, that's Jimmy Martin, of course. Oh, Jimmy. And that bit where he talks about um, the, the week, the Bournemouth week, the last week of the season and how draining it was. I think within the inside, obviously, what yeah, we all hear from the, mm. from the club's perspective, I think it helps us all to understand a lot more about what was going on at the time and, and gives us a little bit more of the reasoning behind some of the decisions were being made. But obviously it was still a very, very draining week for yeah. everybody. And yeah. if ever you kind of want a, a glimpse back at that, listening to Jimmy Martin describe that last week. He, he, just, he hits it spot on, doesn't he? And, and yeah, that final game was just a lot. And I, I did speak to, to Tarky at the end of that game, which you hear as well, and, and Sean, who was a bit, I think, still keyed up from it when he was talking to me. And then when you hear in the bonus episode, I went back in July mm. and sat in his office, which is the funniest office ever because it's just two chairs and a desk yeah, yeah. no pictures <laughs> nothing nothing nothing, no. nothing the shelves behind it big shelves yeah. empty yeah. completely empty um w- w- how's that compared to when frank was in there i Which didn't go the in with frank. i wasn't invited in the office where frank yeah. was in there we used to use it um so kind of like a, a meeting yeah. office but sean yeah allowed me a few times yeah. in his office which I didn't. I said to him, I feel like I'm about to be told off. <laughs> I said, it's like going in the headmaster's office. And he went, no, no, no. He went, some telling's off going in here. <laughs> did you get an office? I did have a little yeah. office. Yeah. It wasn't as fancy. No. But no. there wasn't any pictures in that either. I was, I was too busy. To be honest, it was more where I dumped my coat and my bag in the morning and then I was off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Julia, the, the series is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for delivering it. And congratulations. It really is a wonderful piece of work. And Thank you. Yeah, it, it was a big team as well. I mean, I was in Finch Farm, but a big team. So I just want to say massive thank you to BBC Studios for doing it. BBC Sounds for putting it out there. Mark Chapman, I think, is amazing narrating it as well. And a massive thank you to everyone at Everton because it couldn't have been done without them. And I know sometimes, you know, as you said, there may be some criticism, but actually they opened the doors, Mm -hmm. they let me stay in, and many clubs wouldn't have done at that point with all those things going on. So massive thank you to everyone at Everton. Fantastic. Thank you for coming in. And please, (laughs) please, please, I can't urge you. I know this is one podcast and we shouldn't be pushing other podcasts, but just (laughs) listen to it. BBC Sounds, (laughs) wherever you get your podcasts from, it really, especially during an international break as well. Mm. I mean, if ever you've got a bit of t- spare time to not be panicking about the game-to-game pressures, then this is it, isn't it? Listen to it. It's, it's brilliant. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Thank you again to, to Julia for coming to talk to us about that series. And I really can't stress just, just how good it is and how worthwhile it is to spend a little bit of time during this international break and, and, and listening to that and getting some of that insight from across last season. Now, Chris, obviously we're recording this now on Friday morning, mm-hmm. Thursday night, a couple of years, 12 hours or so ago as it's recording, Everton released a statement just in relation to, to Bill Kenwright. I think it's probably important that we mention that whilst we're on the show, the, the club said that he'd undergone a major medical procedure to, to remove a cancerous tumour from his liver, had a prolonged period in intensive care, but he's now recovering at home. And I think that, you know, I think we'd all wish him a speedy recovery and, and send our best thoughts to, to his, him and 
his family and friends and that as well, of course. Yeah, it says um, it, it's expected to be probably a lot a long process, but one that will hopefully lead to uh, a full um, recovery. Um, yeah, I'm sure whatever anybody's personal thoughts are about the situation at the top of Everton and, and, and the hierarchy, that, that everyone will have to wish uh, Chairman Bill Kenwright um, the best of health. Absolutely, absolutely. Now we're in the middle of an international break and, and we've been had a little bit of of, of soccer essentially from from the uh, the Everton yeah. from the Everton series released by the BBC that's given us a few things to talk about there's also been a few other bits and pieces of, of news as well and mm -hmm. obviously one thing that we have learned this week is something that we always expected to be the case yeah. or you know from a few days earlier but it's now ratified that, that Everton's new stadium will be hosting uh, games for Euro 2028 when it comes to, to the UK and Ireland after Turkey's withdrawal from the process. Again, we expected this was going yeah. to be the case, but it's a big boon, not just for the club, but also for, for the city and the wider region, isn't it? Definitely. Like you say, um, it did have a, a certain inevitability about it for the last week. Uh, and the, inevitability. The, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, the UK and Ireland go, uh, going along for the last week when Turkey, because Turkey have um, getting the, the following European Championships, which they're now doing with Italy in 2032. But yeah, um, returning for, for, for the first time, Everton will be hosting a major international tournament games for, for 62 years since the 1966 um, World Cup performance my time for you say anything Joe uh, but yeah I've been doing a series on that um, this week obviously uh, when it came to Euro 96 um, they went to Anfield the, the games there and then it's going to be Everton this time round I mean there's been talk about why it isn't Anfield and the simple reason is um, the pitch isn't big enough um, isn't long enough to meet UEFA requirements hence why Anfield can't get um, European finals either but it's great being, it, it makes absolutely right that wherever it was going to be that Liverpool was going to be one of the host cities and the, um, Everton's um, stadium will, will be the venue Colin Chong has already said he believes it will become one of the highlights of the tournament um, because hopefully this stadium will be one of the most iconic um, grounds in there it'll and be uh, the newest won't it it'll be the most yeah. advanced uh, well yeah. I mean we'll, uh, Belfast we'll, rather than there's refurbished but yeah. yeah obviously Tottenham Hotspur Tottenham Stadium's in there as well, as well. Um, but yeah certainly in terms of the it's certainly um, other than that one in Belfast which would be a major refurbishment um, it's going to be the, the newest stadium there and um, yeah that, that I'm sure that uh, the outlook of, of Scousers, the people of Liverpool, also being such an international city, so cosmopolitan, welcoming the world again, and all those fans from across Europe who will be coming along. I mean, it should be a marvellous event, um, but I've seen a while off yet, 2028, and uh, hopefully we should be uh, great for everyone. In and the by city. that point, Sean Dyche will have led Everton into Europe, so he'll be well used to hosting. <laughs> games of such calibre won't it hopefully <laughs> I, I hope so I, I, I mean I, nothing would, would uh, make me happier than that uh, would, would, would be wonderful but an important reminder I think it's something that, that I wrote about last week in my Royal Blue column that when you if ever can can get some of the bigger decisions right certainly over the next couple of months and, and yeah, the next couple of years that there are things to be positive about and to look forward to isn't it they've just mm -hmm. got to just got to get there in the first place haven't they and I think Getting there is obviously uh, you know making progress a long way away, but that Bournemouth result it really did help, didn't it? The other day, I mean, just having having a week this week, international weeks are always difficult for yeah. for us in the the local media that you know can't really focus on on what's going on internationally and and, and get a big readership from that. But 
mean, it makes a hell of a difference this one, say, compared to the last one after the Sheffield United game when Everton still hadn't had a win. Yeah. That win over Bournemouth. I know you weren't there, yeah. and that might be something that we have to think about for future games. And Gav Buckland as well. And, and, and yeah, regular yeah. contributor Gav Buckland. It might have to be a strategic withdrawal from big games in the future for, for the two of you. But that really has eased the pressure, hasn't it? I think, And I think it's important to think that seven points from those first eight games isn't enough. That's not a good no. haul. That isn't success for Everton. No. And that isn't success in the context of this season. Because I think when you look at the games that they have played so far that was a as as as, as welcoming a fixture list as you could have and this really should have been a point where Everton would accumulate points to then perhaps act as a cushion going to a more difficult phase of the season but getting that win was huge wasn't it yeah in, in the defence of Gavin and I, we were both there and made a 28 for an even bigger game against Bournemouth, so we can't pin it all on us. But yeah, absolutely massive, like you say, Ned. Just a feel-good factor. Like you say, if, if it actually if it had been the other way round, if they'd have beaten Luton, which they should have been expected to, and lost to Bournemouth, they would have um, the same points, but there just wouldn't have been that feeling mm. for us going into this fortnight. And I'm, I'm sure um, people can appreciate... You know, we, we, we cover the, the club at every level more than anyone else. And so for us as well, the fact these next two weeks made it a lot more easier than for, for us. And just in the terms of the, the articles we're writing and um, the feeling around that, if it would have been very difficult, very sort of nervous still if, if there had been a negative result against Bournemouth. I mean, also the way that they played. I mean, everyone would have just taken a scrappy 1-0, but the fact that it was more emphatic and first time in almost a year that they'd, they'd won by that margin at Goodison Park just um, as a bit more of a spring and a step for everybody. But like you say, the points total is not what mm. um, people would have hoped for and expected. I mean, that's the concern, isn't it, that when Everton had what was on paper a, a favourable run of fixtures, of course, there are no easy games in the Premier League. It sounds like a cliche, but, you know, it's, it's, it's genuine fact. But the, they've not got as many points as they would have hoped for. And there are mitigating circumstances behind that. And we all know that Sean Dyche has been talking about the XG. It's, I suppose it makes it tougher to take. But at least they have been competitive in most of the matches. Just haven't been taking the details, as the manager says it, and uh, to, to win those games. But yeah, to actually finish with that result ahead of what, of course, we're going to talk about it going forward later this week. Uh, ne next week, sorry, with the, with the Derby match and... Uh, more tough games on the horizon uh, after that. Um, yeah, it was it was a real sort of relief, really, to, to have that performance and that um, result. Next run of fixtures is, is really tricky. And, and like you say, that's something that we'll probably get onto in a bit yeah. more detail next week, particularly the build-up to the derby. But one of the things that, that is filling me with a little bit of, of hope from this week as well is the and obviously we knew this was going to be the case anyway but you know, just to confirm that we had the training ground pitches mm -hmm. uh, released by some training ground pitches released by the club yesterday and 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 one of the things that I was looking forward to and I asked Sean about this um, just before the Bournemouth match and, and, and the gaffer and, to and you the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the prospect of this is the fact that you spoke about mitigating circumstances yeah. for the early results of the season there and I think it's important to remember obviously how much change has undergone since the beginning of the season you know it's mm. a side that when you look back to Fulham it, you know, Neil Mopay and Alex Awobi were starting Tom Cannon was a bench all three of those have left obviously Damari Gray as well but obviously you know Beto has come in we now have Jack Harrison back fit. We yeah. have Dwight McNeil back fit after the injury he picked up at Stoke. We have Arnold Danjuma fit. He didn't make that starting lineup because of his own issues. And then obviously we've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin and that as well. Um, this feels for the first time this season or this summer 
that Sean Dyche has got his his frontline five in the same place, all fit, all available. This is their first opportunity to develop a relationship. This 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 week, this sort of ten days fortnight, is, is, could actually be really really useful for that. I know that if you speak to Sean, one of the things he'll say is that international breaks are by no means as as useful as people think they are because you have a huge amount of fluctuation who's there who's going off on international duty who's staying how you're going to manage them who do you give a break when and, and things like that and he says that really you only actually get a core two or three days with the team okay. going into their next match depending on when people come back from you know, the last few come back from from international games and, and and their respite periods but five players you don't have to worry about that are Calvert-Lewin, Beto, Harrison, um, Dan Juma and, and Dwight McNeil. Uh, none of them are international duty and they're all there training. We saw the pictures of them. Really good opportunity this for them to help try and start to develop a bit of an understanding, isn't it? And perhaps turn that attacking unit from one that creates chances to, but doesn't finish them to perhaps a bit more of a cohesive, intelligent unit that can keep up that what has been an impressive run of, of, of creating chances, albeit perhaps against lesser defences that they're now going to start to come up against during this, this next period of games. But hopefully to be able to start putting the flesh on, the, you know, sorting out those finer details, which Deitch says cost them the games. Yeah, definitely. We, we saw it already with Jack Harrison, the, the Bournemouth game, getting his, his, his first goal for the club. I mean... What a finish. Oh, yeah. We, 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 I thought it was a good touch. Yeah. I, I yeah. look back at... Yeah. It's quite interesting. I, 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 I do this sometimes and I look back on, on, on my match reports and my match reports aren't on the whistle, but they're really... The, the intention is to try and get them out, publish them about an hour after the final whistle. But with all the logistics of what we do after a game... Really, I have about a 10-minute window to finish mm. off after the final whistle because then you've got to you know, decamp from one part of the stadium to the other and then you've got to be ready for the managers or the players and, and you, you know, your focus switches very quickly. So sometimes I kind of look back a couple of days later or a couple of hours later and think, oh, God. and I must admit, I, like, in, in my head, I think I, I think I write this in my match, but I'm not sure. But I think I thought that Jack Harrison took a touch before he yeah. did that because... When I was looking back on it, and for those of people who are listening, go to Goodison Park. The Wi-Fi is, is is woeful, even in the media section. So for those saying, why don't you watch a replay on your phone or you know, on, yeah. on, on your laptop before you rewrite it? It's a lot harder than, yeah. than that. Um, but such was such was yeah. the, the composure and the delicateness of his, the deftness of his of his, his finish. I thought he took a touch first, but yeah. he ran onto it, didn't he? I mean, yeah. He just, so yeah. It, sorry I, for that. No, no. It was, it was a good point because. Um, well, I remember Bernard at Everton um, as goal. He scored against West Ham at the Park End as, as well. And, and at the time, saying nobody else at Everton could have scored the goal yes. that Bernard scored. And p- possibly nobody else at Everton could have scored the goal that Jack Harrison scored. So he, he's already brought a new dynamic mm. to the team. He's already given them something different there. And that's, and that's what we've been talking about there with these attacking combinations and the, the understandings. Beto still very much learning his way in English football. It was great to hit the ground running 24 hours after signing. Comes off the bench at um, Doncaster Rovers, scores there. But in the Premier League, we've seen bits and pieces from him. He, he's very athletic. He's good at holding the ball up, intelligent there, but a bit more composure in mm. front of the goal. So hopefully this period can sort of help him sort of work that understanding. 
the renaissance of Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And we can't understate that, really, the way, the way he, he's come back. I mean, I did a statistical look at him um, um, this week, and some of the numbers there, the increase in output from him, absolutely staggering. So it's not just the goals. Obviously, he scored three goals in three games, didn't hit the mark against Bournemouth, but again, led the line so well. Just so many, like you say, potential positives there to work upon. Actually, they've got the uh, the options that way. I mean, the fact that Arnott Dan Jumer isn't even starting the games now and is having to work to get back in mm. into the side. I mean, it's just great to have those options. Or if you look what the bench was like in the first month of the season when you're scraping along there there's kids on the bench there's players who've hardly played especially Sometimes Sheffield United after, fill it, yeah. after those final yeah. Yeah, those final um, departures on the transfer deadline yeah. I mean that really was yeah. a concern so yeah so the, yeah so there's so so much for them to work upon and sort of develop those blossoming um, relationships and, co- and combinations in, in, in what is a, is a key area because Hopefully, if they if they can get it was first clean sheet, I mean the other end of this pitch, we're talking about that. You sort of give take that as a given with Dyche, but they will be Titans solid at the back, and they haven't been there. That was the first clean sheet, wasn't it, at the, at the season against Bournemouth as well. So yeah, there's there's um, plenty to be to be working on, it. and it would be nice that they've actually got those those forward options, somebody who can sort of create something out of a bit of not out of nowhere or have that bit of magic um, going forward and hopefully Jack Harrison this can be you know the the, the first of many because um, he did, I remember speaking to his, his, his college coach from the US because obviously he's had that sort of unorthodox um, sort of career path where mm-hmm. he was he moved to the US before he was playing as, as a teenager and he sort of came through the college system there and he, he, he was saying no he, he was a real special player and, and we're getting to see that yeah well I think we'll leave it there on that relatively positive note um, thanks very much for joining us for this latest edition of the Royal Blue obviously international break so a little bit shorter than normal but we're grateful for, for Julie to come in uh, as well and give us give us her insight and we'll be back on I should be back on Monday I think as we start the tentative countdown to to the derby don't we so thanks very much for joining us we hope you have a wonderful weekend and uh, yeah keep smiling thank you you've been listening to the Royal Blue podcast from the Liverpool Echo 